Welcome to Tales of American History, the Witnessing History Education Foundation podcast, educating Americans to understand the history of their country and of other countries so that they will appreciate the value of America's unique free institutions. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org. Download our documentary films and free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at pbslearningmedia.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Now, take a journey back through time with Kent Masterson Brown and his guest, and let their storytelling transport you to the most compelling moments in American history. Today, Kent will be talking with Ronald F. Maxwell, the writer and director of the epic Civil War films, Gettysburg, Gods and Generals, and Copperhead. Ron has been a film director, screenwriter, and producer of films since 1976. He is a member of the Writers Guild of America, the Directors Guild of America, and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Welcome, Kent and Ron. Well, I'd like to welcome uh, today uh, my friend Ron Maxwell, uh, who has come here to Lexington from his lovely home in Flint Hill, Virginia, on top of uh, the mountain in Rappahannock County. And Ron, welcome. It's great to have you. Great to be with you. As all of you know, Ron Maxwell is the uh, the writer uh, and the director of the movies Gettysburg, Gods and Generals, and Copperhead. And what I'd like to do, Ron, is start off by asking you, have you always been interested in history? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, I can uh, give my father the blame or the credit for that <laughs> because uh, when uh, before I could read, my father would uh, read uh, my brother and I to sleep uh-huh. with uh, uh, and my earliest memories are Thackeray's Vanity Fair and Charles Dickens. Oh. Uh, at the time, I thought it was uh, now in retrospect, what you call child abuse. <laughs> uh, just kidding. But uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, the the love of stories and characters and literature got really uh, imbued in me at a very early age so that by the time I, I learned to read and write, which is around first grade, uh, I immediately uh, tr- just segued into reading myself, uh, and before long, I was uh, reading fiction and literature mm-hmm. and history, and uh, 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 a great deal more than, in fact, uh, I was being offered in, in the classroom. Yeah, you're a graduate of the um, uh, New York University uh, School of Film, and um, I'd like to ask you when you went to NYU and wanted to study film. Uh, Did you ever have in mind at some time you would do films on historical subjects? Yeah, probably the answer is yes. Uh, I I had been an undergraduate theater major, and and for my whole youth, uh, I was, uh, you know, again, from from a very early age, writing and directing uh, plays, Mm -hmm. 
in the garage, uh, <laughs> in my living room, uh, be, cool. be, be, uh, before I had any notion of, of a career or, yeah. or that this would be a life commitment. It was just something I yeah. always did. Yeah. And uh, I remember when I was, I think, 11 or 12, I grew up in northern New Jersey, and we were in the, um, the broadcast area of uh, uh, the, uh, the New York City big broadcast channels. Of course, mm-hmm. this is long, long before cable television. This is all broadcast television. Mm-hmm. And one of the uh, channels broadcast um, a BBC production called An Age of Kings, mm-hmm. black and white. But there were Shakespeare's histories. So Ooh. it started from uh, Richard the Two yeah. th- through Richard III with all the Henrys in between. <laughs> and right. uh, and I was just uh, uh, captivated. And it was a, a, you know, a window into a world that I didn't know had previously had existed. Uh, I mean, I had been exposed to Shakespeare th- thanks to my father. But, uh, you know, reading it, looking at it on the page is different than seeing it produced and uh, with great... Uh, uh, Elizabeth, uh, Shakespearean actors, it made such a profound uh, impression on me that uh, soon thereafter, because I had already been writing plays at 11, mm-hmm. 12, 13, yeah. at around 13, 14, I wrote, uh, researched and wrote a play in blank verse in a, an iambic pentameter uh, called Charles the <laughs> First. Uh, and I had as my source of his history collection, we had the old books of, of my, my father had these great collections of uh, elegantly bound books of the history of England, the history of France. And so yeah. I was always reading them already. Wow. Yeah. And, and Charles I gravitated to me. And, of course, we remember his last parting words, which were also the last words in my play. <laughs> uh, before he's executed, Charles I says, I go from a corruptible to an incorruptible crown. Wow. Well, and then I produced it. Then I got money from uh, the student council and from the the the, wow. the Mustang Band Fund. We had wow. a band that was world renowned that would go to the Rose Bowl every yeah. year, yeah. and and I actually raised a few hundred dollars and we produced it on stage. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the following year, um, I wrote another play in blank verse and iambic pentameter called Henry the mm-hmm. Third, which uh, 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 so so I, I managed to find some kings that Shakespeare hadn't touched, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and had a, and, and that too I raised money. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, you know, ironically, the, my, the high school I attended, so that would have been my sophomore year in high school. Uh, so in the first play was my freshman year in high school. That was Charles I. And then my, my sophomore year of high school is when I wrote and produced and directed Henry III. And uh, <clears throat> ironically, there was no theater program in my high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you believe this? Yeah. So there I was. Uh, my life was all about theater. I, and I was doing the academics. I was kind of an honor roll student. but. Yeah. But n- not even a class in, in dramatics. And so I had to, like, invent it. So sometimes, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Yes, indeed. So this is, I, I share this background with you so that you understand that when I applied to college and I, I, um, and I, I was happily accepted at the universities I applied to and I decided to go to NYU because it gave me a full tuition scholarship. And my, yeah. my folks were working class and yeah. that made a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it turned out that they had a very good theater program. And I spent my four years uh, as an undergraduate constantly in costumes and makeup and doing theater. <laughs> yeah. you know, Jean Giraudoux play and yeah. uh, Nuit play and, yeah. and uh, uh, Chekhov. And it was a wonderful, wonderful undergraduate theater pr- program. 
Uh, and I, uh, I and by that time in my life, I thought, well, I, I'm number one an actor, mm-hmm. uh, and also directing, also writing. But it was mm-hmm. the whole thing to me, and I had yeah. always done it. I didn't yeah. know anything else. Yeah. So that um, by the time I, uh, I I finished my junior year, yeah. I was cast as Hamlet. And I'd say I was 19 when I played Hamlet. And I don't think I've ever had so much fun in my life. <laughs> and it was the whole play. And I remember in those days we had the reel-to-reel tape recorders, and I had a little reel-to-reel tape recorder yeah. that I kept uh, to learn the lines yeah. Uh, yeah. and uh, to jam them into my head. And there, the character of Hamlet, just the character alone, there has more words than the entire Scottish play of Shakespeare. Wow. Just to give you an idea of the magnitude of it. And, 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 and that, that uh, so I'm finally getting around to answering your question because uh, uh, at one of those performances, uh, Jay uh, Hester, who was the president of uh, New York University, remember uh-huh. there was an uptown campus, which I attended, and there was a downtown campus, right. which is the one we think about today at Washington yeah. Square. And back in the 60s, uh, when I was an, an undergraduate, uh, there was a beautiful uptown campus w- where they had the Hall of Fame for Great Americans, right. uh, a traditional quad with the, uh, with the, uh, 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 the, the Romanesque buildings and, and the Georgian buildings that since, since, in the decades since, has been sold, I think, to, to a Bronx Community College. But anyway, the, uh, the president saw the performance. He came backstage afterwards and he said, you belong in the new school of the arts. They were just forming a founding, a graduate program called the School of the Arts. So I said, fine. And uh, so with his recommendation, I went down to see um, the, uh, the new dean of the theater program, which is what I, I expected to apply to. Um, and uh, when I was sitting there waiting for that interview, uh, there was a poster on the wall in the waiting room. It was down on Washington Square, and it was announcing the new graduate school in film and television. Yeah. And I thought, with the arrogance of youth, <laughs> I know everything there is to know about acting. I'd yeah. been acting my whole life. I was yeah. 19, but my whole life I'd been acting, and I'd done Shakespeare and everything else. And I thought, what I really want to learn how to do is make movies. Yeah. And so uh, I, I did the interview, but I immediately applied for the film school instead of the acting program. Yeah. And I got the letter from the president of the university, uh, and uh, I was accepted with a scholarship into the Graduate School of Film. And so I didn't realize in the moment, Kent, that I was making that kind of a major life decision. I didn't yeah. think I was leaving acting behind and going into motion. But in, but in effect, that's what I did, unknowingly. I've hardly ever acted since. It's been my whole life from that moment, from... Uh, 1970, mm-hmm. has been about learning how to make movies. It was a two-year program at the time, graduate program. Mm-hmm. Now it, now it, it, it's a three-year program. Then it was a two-year program. And my life took a turn, and ever since I've been making movies. Uh, and sometimes with sadness, I remember the wonderful, how wonderful it is to be the actor. Yeah. But what it did g- give me and what it has continued to provide me is a, uh, an understanding, appreciation, and a sympathy Mm-hmm. For what the actor does, yeah, yeah. Uh, having been trained in the method, in the Stanislavski method, practicing right. and having done it myself, I understand what an actor does, and so it's given me a, a, a tool, a very useful and I think essential tool to work in the kind of movies that I make. Wow, you know, it's interesting. Um, we uh, just completed a film on Abraham Lincoln in Illinois, and in that film. Uh, you watch Lincoln try to educate himself. 
And he has a friend named Jack Kelso, who lives in New Salem, Illinois, who lends him books by uh, the Shakespeare plays, uh, Robert Burns, uh, among others. And these are the books that he reads. And notice in, in, in that film and in his life, Lincoln becomes interested in history. And so did you. And you, your window into it, from what you're saying, is reading Shakespeare. And you said that last night. By the way, folks, he, Ron delivered a stunning address to the Kentucky Civil War Roundtable last night to a huge crowd. And he went over some of this last night. And uh, honestly, uh, your address last night, Ron, was spectacular. And but you mentioned Shakespeare then too, and the the history plays of Shakespeare, because Shakespeare does take you to the site, and he doesn't editorialize. He takes you to the story, and you get in the story, and I can see how uh, Shakespeare influences people and influenced you. Well, there are influences that you, I can understand better now after yeah. decades of making movies. Uh, you, uh, in the moment, uh, of course, you're not, I don't think, I wasn't self-consciously thinking of Shakespeare or, or self-consciously thinking of Richard Wagner and the I'm Ring sure of the Ring or the plays of Sophocles and the Greeks. But looking back, you understand how it shapes you uh, in, in, because in many, many ways. For instance, uh, you, uh, you, there, it, it, there's a humility that you absorb, mm-hmm. even if you're not conscious of it. Now, now I can look back and understand it. Because when you've read the plays of the ancient Greeks, when you've read the plays of the Renaissance, of uh, of the of the Enlightenment, of the Restoration period, of 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 the Western civilization, right. of, of the the canon, as they're sometimes called, Moliere, Racine in France, Shakespeare, Congreve, the other authors mm-hmm. in, in in the English language, you realize you're in a stream. You're not alone. Right. You're 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 in a long stream of thousands of years of fellow humans who are grappling with the big mysteries of life, grappling right. with the human condition. Right. And, and in, in Shakespeare in particular, um, of course no one talks like that. No one talked that way then when he wrote, and <laughs> right. no one talks that way now. But this is part of the power because he puts the, the English language into poetry. All of those plays are set in blank verse and iambic pentameter. They're, they're, they're poems. They're epic poems that then become enlivened on a stage by accomplished, trained actors who make it sound conversational. Right. But in fact, it's poetry. So it's elevated language. And I think that's an immense part of the power. Right. Uh, j- just think of any uh, any verse of any of the plays, the, the Scottish play, Julius Caesar, right. Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, and take the verse out of it and the poetry out of it. It, it the power is just diffused. diffused. It goes, right. away. It goes away. So, right. so 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 it's actually the language of Shakespeare that holds the power like a uranium atom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that could, that then gets translated by by great acting and great directing right. uh, for an audience. Right. And so, having imbued that and having understood that, I I made a, a decision, a uh, conscious decision in the in in the civil in, in particular in Gettysburg, and Gods and Generals to work in the epic form, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. epic form which is as old as the Greeks. Right. 
So some critics, uh, and I'm not being churlish. Uh, if you're making movies, you should be open to criticism, and I am. Uh, uh, some critics say, well, people didn't talk that way in the Civil War, and people don't talk that way now, and they, they missed the point. That's right. They missed the point. Right. We're working in the epic style. Everything is real. It's emotionally real, just like it's absolutely emotionally real in a Shakespeare play. We're right. gripped with emotion. We understand that the, the scene between Lady Macbeth and Macbeth when she's in, uh, encouraging him to murder Duncan. That is a powerful scene. We get it. We understand those impulses, those deep primordial human instincts to do that kind of human right. destruction for, because of vanity, because of ambition, right. because of what we want, whatever the, the driving force is. So it's, it's, it's based, it's derived, it's moving in emotion, but it's rendered through this more formal thing. So the same thing in Gods and Generals in Gettysburg. Uh, it, 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 it's it's got to be emotionally true, but then it's conveyed through a different medium. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ron, you, you obviously, because of this your, your training, your self-training, too, have been interested in history a long time. When did you first consider doing a film like Gettysburg, which is your first Civil War film? Uh, well, the, uh, going back to the early days, uh, obviously, when I was 13, 14, 15, I was selecting historical subjects. As I said earlier, Charles I, Henry III. Right. And through... Uh, I remember when I was, uh, what year was it? It was uh, sometime in the late 60s. So I, I, I must have already been in film school or maybe in between uh, uh, the theater program and film school. But I got intrigued. I wanted to do a film about Wolf and, 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 uh, and Montcalm and the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. Uh, Quebec. In Quebec yeah. during the, in 1759 in, uh, I... in the French and Indian War. And I took a trip up there and uh, visited the actual grounds and uh, and then in 70, 70, right after immediately after graduating from uh, from the from the uh, graduate school of film and television, uh, all my classmates went. Uh, there were only thirty people in the class. It was the very first uh, graduating class of the film school. All my classmates went west mm -hmm. to Los Angeles, mm -hmm. and and being always kind of a minor contrarian, I went east. <laughs> I went east to I Europe. That. I went to Europe, <laughs> and uh, but but there was it wasn't totally strange because my mother um, was French. Uh, mm -hmm. She was a war right. bride. Right. My father married her in, in the, the very end of World War II, when he was you know a, a soldier in Europe. And so I had the European connection. I had the, the I had the French connection, although it had nothing to do with drugs. And um, uh, and so I went to Europe, and I was in London. Uh, and eventually, a year later, my daughter was born in London. So I have a daughter who's a subject of the Queen. But while I was in London, um, I did some research at the British Library, mm -hmm. uh, and that's where, uh, not surprisingly, you could find the diaries and the records, the regimental records of General Wolfe. And all, and all the British, the, the whole expedition in 1759. Oh, yeah. So I was already very much interested in doing that as a film. And, and that year is when I finally uh, met uh, Peter Snell uh, in London, who had produced Julius Caesar, uh, starring Jason Robards and Charlton Heston, the big Hollywood movie. Sure. And, um, and I just wanted to do anything to get in the movie business, you know, mm -hmm. get coffee, get take somebody's laundry out, you know, <laughs> uh, whatever, you know. Uh, with my MFA uh, in, in, in filmmaking. And uh, Peter eventually introduced me to Charlton Heston, 
and we hit it off, and uh, and I was hired to be uh, uh, Charlton Heston's personal assistant on a movie called Antony and Cleopatra, which we filmed sure. in Spain, in the south of Spain, the summer, the spring and summer of 1971. We filmed in Almeria on locations, and we filmed in Madrid at the studios, uh, studios uh, Moro, I think it was called. And it was a great experience because I met uh, 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 Fernando Rey, the great Spanish actor who had done a lot of work with Luis Buñuel, and uh, and just a beautiful. It was a mixed uh, uh, Spanish uh, English cast. But again, uh, the way things worked out, there I was working on another historical, big historical epic, and of course that was my window and my and my uh, liaison, if you will, with the old Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm part, I'm part of the generation of even though I'm now seventy, <laughs> I'm part of the uh, generation of the of the newer the newer Hollywood. Sure. Uh, the, the the generation that actually went to film schools that yeah. that, that had formal educations. The older yeah. generation there were, were no such thing as film yeah. schools, hardly even film courses. You learned on the job as an apprentice, the old yeah. fashioned way. So I was so I'm so grateful that I had that connection to the old Hollywood through Chuck Heston. Through uh, Joe Canut, the second unit director, uh, <clears throat> Joe Canut's father was Yakima Canut, who yeah, was the sure. guy that's under the traces in in John Ford's stagecoach. That he great was. Scene. He was in Gone with the Wind. Uh, I was so lucky that 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 I uh, that I uh, you know had those kind of mentors in my wow, life. Wow! Wow! That is just so so cool. Uh, getting interested in Gettysburg, you obviously came across. Uh, uh, Michael Shower's book, uh, The Killer Angels. Is that what got you interested in doing a film on Gettysburg? That's exactly what got me in. Even though I had uh, already been a student of history and loving to read history, and obviously, as we just said, uh, selecting history for subjects of movies, it was reading that book that really uh, grabbed me. Uh, as a youth... Uh, uh, my father uh, and mother took my brother and I to all sorts of of, of, of historical sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we grew up in northern New Jersey, we would go to Ringwood Manor. We would go to the Saratoga battlefield in New York, Fort William Henry, Fort Ticonderoga. So the, the places that I had visited were all colonial, French and Indian War, American Revolution sites. Right. I'd never been to a Civil War site ever until I read The Killer Angels. Uh, we were just too far north. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was, it's even from where I lived in New Jersey, it's two and a half hours at least to get to Gettysburg battlefield. Yeah. yeah. So the, my very first visit to Gettysburg was after I had optioned uh, the novel, The Killer Angels. Mm-hmm. And Michael Shower said, let's meet at um, the battlefield. Mm-hmm. He he was a pilot and he flew a little Piper Cub and he, and he lived in northern Florida uh, back in those days. And I'm thinking now this had to be, uh, I optioned the book in 78. So so sometime in 79, 78, somewhere around there, we uh, met in Gettysburg. I drove down. He flew up to the little grass strip in, in, outside of Gettysburg. Sure, sure. No, and he walked me through the Battle of Gettysburg. It took us three days. So day one, as he told as he tells the story in his novel. So it's not everything that happened. Right. It's what he, he follows in his book. Day one, he walked me through it. Day two, he walked me through it. And day three, imagine wow. having this guy wow. as the first time ever you're in <laughs> Gettysburg Battlefield. Yeah. Uh, huh. And uh, uh, memorable experience for sure. 
Um, Michael was a character. He must uh, have been. Tell us a little bit about him. He died 10 years later. He died in 88 uh-huh. uh, of a massive heart attack. He was only, I think, 56 or 50. Is it late? Yeah. Second half of his 50s. Yeah. I'm not sure. But, you know, from my perspective now, a young man. Uh, and he was a, um, he was what you call a character. Uh-huh. He was an intellectual, but a big guy, big forearms like Popeye. Mm-hmm. He had been a heavyweight prize fighter. That's what I understood. He was a cop in St. Petersburg, Florida. <laughs> he was, uh, I think he was in the Marines or the, or, or the paratroopers, but mm-hmm. he, was, he, was, he had a military uh, background too. He was a tough guy, and he was kind of, you know how you meet some guys and you just know intuitively as another guy, just don't mess with don't me. Don't mess with me. <laughs> and, and I don't mean, he's not the kind of guy that's going to sick a lawyer on you. Mm-hmm. He's the kind of guy that's just going to take your head off <laughs> in the moment. No calling of lawyers <laughs> or sheriffs. Yeah, yeah. He's, gonna, he's the kind of guy that's going to mete out justice on the spot. And we all know if you're a guy, you know, we've met guys like that. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't make them bad guys, and that's right. not what my implication is. It yeah. just means it makes them tough guys. Yeah. They're like street guys, yeah. and they're kind of have a, they, they exude this. So he was a, a bizarre combination that way because he was clearly an intellectual. Mm-hmm. He could talk to you about Shakespeare till the end of time. Mm-hmm. He taught Shakespeare at university. He taught the classics mm-hmm. and a very accomplished writer. And by the time I met him, uh, that, that book, The Killer Angels, had won the Pulitzer Prize yeah. for fiction. Yeah. Let's remember, not for history, for fiction. Of course, right. He had done a great job of research, but ultimately it was a, it was a work of fiction, just right. like my movies are works of fiction. Right. They're right. researched. They're about history, but they're all movies are are, are acts of the imagination. Of course. And so, of so, course. that is true with Gettysburg and Gods and Generals. So we became friends, um, and uh, <clears throat> and you know all through until the day he died, uh, and. Uh, uh, he was a tough businessman. I had to make my option payments, uh, and and a couple of times because you know we all have our ups and downs in life economically. And uh, I, a couple of times I said, you know, can you cut me some slack here? Maybe give me a couple of months. And the answer was simple: no. <laughs> and I had to scramble, find the money, beg, borrow, but not steal, and get him the money, which That's I always incredible. did. <laughs> Tell me, you then were the writer. You, you wrote the script yes. for Gettysburg. And how long a process was that for you? It was uh, quite lengthy. Uh, it, uh, it took a while to, to condense that novel down. Condense is the wrong word. To, to, to translate right. that novel into a screenplay. Right. It took a couple of years. I didn't have a screenplay really until late 80, early 81. Right. And all the time you're writing, you're also trying to raise the capital for a Well, yeah, I'm not trying to raise the capital until I have a script. Okay. So the first couple of years was just doing the script. But I was also doing other things. I, I was – because in 1978, uh, I had directed a picture for public television. It was, I think, released February 78 – uh, Jan- excuse me, January 25th, 1978, called Verna, USO Girl, right. which uh, I had adapted uh, from, uh, actually, I had hired uh, Paul, uh, my, Paul Inarato, uh, who was a very hot playwright at the time in New York, and I, I hired him to adapt a short story by Paul Gallico called Verna, which was about a, uh, a, a performer uh, on the front lines in World War II. It was mm. called, uh, and we, t- we changed the title from Verna to Verna, USO girl. Mm-hmm. And we cast Sissy Spacek, who had already done a couple of big movies. 
uh, and uh, Bill Hurt, right out of uh, Juilliard Film School, mm-hmm. Howard De Silva, and Howard Sally Kellerman, yeah. Sally Kellerman, yeah. who had just I've seen him on the stage, uh, yeah. Nashville a year or two earlier, yeah. and 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 it was a very successful film. It it got me an Emmy nomination. It won an Emmy nomination for Howard De Silva as Best Supporting Actor. It got uh, um, uh, in Arado a nomination. So it was very well received, and 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 as a result of that, after it aired on January twenty fifth, nineteen seventy eight. I literally was drafted to Hollywood. I mean, my phone was ringing, and you know, yeah. one of the people calling me, calling me was Barbara Streisand, and I thought it was friends, you know, playing <laughs> jokes on me. Yeah, and Hollywood agents, and so I, I, I soon went out there. So, so by, uh, by, I remember I've traveled out with, uh, out there uh, with my wife uh, Victoria, uh, uh, on Valentine's Day, uh, February uh, nineteen seventy-eight, and now, and, and the. Um, so from that time on, I was very busy on Hollywood projects. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I was trying to write the screenplay for mm-hmm. for the Killer Angels, mm-hmm. which is why, partly why it took me so long. And then I I ended up directing Little Darlings for Paramount, and then the night the lights went out in Georgia, Georgia for Apple right. Embassy, and they were both very successful commercial films. And at some point around there, I thought I'm never going to do Killer Angels unless I make it a priority. And it still took me more time. And it wasn't until years later that I finally was able to finance it. Uh, I, I, as I said, I optioned the book in '78. Uh, I finally made a deal with uh, Ted Turner in uh, uh, 1992. So it was 15 years wow. uh, wow. saga to try wow. to get that movie uh, financed. Incredible. And then, and then, and then it came out in the fall of '93. Uh, Tell me the process of finding actors, principal actors. Uh, in Gettysburg, you got Martin Sheen as Lee. How did you go about getting them? Just the mechanics of doing it. Well, you have an idea in your head of who you want. Uh, and, on, uh, and the model of making movies, it, it hasn't changed much even now. Uh, the motion picture distribution, release, and financing system depends on stars. Mm-hmm. On big names, marquee names. Right. Now that's not the case in streaming television. That's a whole new area now. Amazon, Hulu, Netflix. Mm-hmm. There are names, uh, uh, marquee names, but it doesn't depend on it anymore. It's going into yeah. a whole area, which I think, in many ways, is liberating to uh, the what can be done, the subject matter, the stories, etc. But in the movie world, uh, it's so expensive to make a movie and then to release a movie. It, it costs almost as much, if not more, to release a movie with advertising and marketing than it does even to make the movie. The, that the, that the, 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 uh, the economics of it is so, such that you have to attract an audience the first weekend. Right. And, the, and the way you attract the audience the first weekend is by the, the marquee names, the movie stars. Right. So that system, which is as old as the 1920s, sure. is still very much in place. Sure. And, so, uh, and then the bigger, the bigger the budget of the movie, the more the bigger the star has to be. So sometimes to support a movie that costs above $60, $80 million, you have to hire an actor that costs Fifteen or twenty million dollars, just yeah. their fee. Yeah. So it's a, it, it's it's a rarefied game, uh, and to play at that level, you you've got to be coming off a big grossing picture as a writer or yeah. a director. Yeah. Uh, and it's 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 not the best model in the world to get work done, and and I I think that the model that we're going into now is much more promising in in streaming television. But the theatrical model, where you're going to go to a movie theater, buy a ticket, and sit down in a big dark room and see a movie with the hundreds of other complete strangers, which is the model that you and I grew up with, Kent. That still depends on names. So you start out by saying 
the financier, the studio, or whoever is is financing the movie, uh, or the, and the distributors, whoever is going to distribute and circulate and sell the movie, say these are the names that we need, and they give you these lists okay. of the male or female actors, and that list moves. It's not a hard and fast list. Some mm-hmm. people are always on it, like Tom Cruise, yeah. but that but that even that level of Tom Cruise is not for independent filmmakers. That, that that's the that's the big studio movies. Yeah. So we don't even look at people like that. It, it's kind of it's not the A plus actors. It's the A and B plus list that you have to have. Mm-hmm. And so they'll say, and of course the actors have to be right for the role. So it's not any actor. It's So by the time you take the marquee name plus who's who could do it, who's mm-hmm. right for the role, and then who's available, who's not already working for the next year, you're down to sometimes three or four names mm-hmm. for this lead, three or four names for that lead, three or four names for this lead. And if you don't get those three names or two of the three, you're just not going to make your movie. Yeah. So the major agencies which control the talent, rule the theatrical business. There's no way of getting around it. Well, there is a quasi-way, which is if you just have your own $20 million, go make your movie. Yeah, right. But, but that very few people are in that position. <laughs> uh, so, um, so basically, you've got to play this game. And that means you have to have a fully written, excellent, fully polished screenplay and to get it to the actors, the, the, there's no actor that's going to read it, even if they, they – well, they might read it if they're a close friend of yours. But the next question they're going to ask is, uh, when is the start date, which means when are you going to start filming? And where's my offer? And, they, and in Hollywood, we call it a pay or play offer. Mm-hmm. In other words, so without an offer, without saying, we want your client on March 2nd to work for three weeks and we're offering you right now in writing – $2 million, and we're willing to escrow that in the Screen Actors Guild. If you can't have that conversation, don't even make the call. <laughs> don't even make the call because the agent won't appreciate it, yeah. and he won't give it to yeah. his client. That's the way the business is. And so basically you have to have the whole thing. It's a chicken and an egg situation because you can't get it financed without the stars, right. uh, and, yet, and yet you can't make the offer without the financing. <laughs> Uh, so you can understand what a rubric's cube you have to work in <laughs> yes. and, 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 uh, and, and why very few people can play the game, yeah. the theatrical game. Yeah. Tough. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Now, now, beyond the stars, of course, once you know you're making the movie, the movie is now financed, you have a start date. Now, the other roles, the other 20, 30, 40, in the case of Gettysburg, 153 roles, you hire casting directors. In, in the case of Gettysburg, a casting director in New York, a casting director in, in Los Angeles, and you spend three to four to five months seeing thousands of actors. They're pre-screened by the casting directors, uh, but you have to see a lot as a director. And that's just – there's no way around that. That's just time-consuming, sitting in a casting agency, yeah. seeing an actor every 15 minutes, every 20 minutes. Uh, some, some actors go, come in and, uh, you know, you want to give them a shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, actors, the actors are used to being frustrated. They they prepare for an audition. They come in. They open their mouth and they go, "Thank you very much." Yeah. And I try not to do that with actors. I try to really give them an opportunity to do their thing. Right. And so you're spending ten or fifteen, sometimes twenty minutes with an actor. That's you're talking weeks and weeks and weeks of casting. Wow. And the casting process is essential. You cannot short circuit it. You cannot rush it. Uh, if you get the casting right, you have the potential to make a great movie. The mm-hmm. potential. You could still screw it up. Mm-hmm. If you don't get the casting right, you're doomed from the start. Wow. I can see that. I can see that. So you – I guess Martin Sheen was your first 
No, no. My first choice for Lee for, Get- for Gettysburg was Robert Duvall. Uh, I had given Robert Duvall a script early on. We were at, at the time we were both living in New York City. He made a great Lee in uh, uh, Gods and Generals. I, I forget how I met him. I have to think back how I originally met him. But I got him the script, and he said he was very interested in doing it. Then years later, years later, when we finally got the movie financed with Ted Turner, uh, Robert Duvall was not available. Hmm. He was busy on other projects. He was just not available. So we had to look, and it took us a while because you needed to have an actor who could had the gravitas right. uh, to do Lee. Mm-hmm. You know, not anybody can play Robert E. Lee. It's a, uh, there's yeah. a question of gravitas and stature uh, right. and kind of things that are kind of baked in the persona. And it took us a while, but we then found Marty, Marty Sheen, who I think did a magnificent job. He did. And then a decade later, when we were doing Gods and Generals, we went back because we wanted to have all the same actors replicate all their roles sure. to the extent possible. So Jeff Daniels was available right. again, and uh, Brian Mallon was available again. Right. But Marty was not. He was doing uh, uh, his series, his uh-huh. TV series, uh, West Wing. Yeah. Uh, so I circled back to Bobby Duvall, who was available. <laughs> so and that and so that's strange so how that worked out. Is, and then yeah. then the original choice for Gettysburg yeah. ended up playing Lee in, in Gods and Generals. Yeah. Tell me, I, I'm sure everybody listening would like to know what it is like directing these people, uh, Martin Sheen and Robert Duvall, and uh, what's it like directing them? Well, yeah, I think as a director, uh, when, you're, when you're with actors, uh, you, it's not that you forget their movie stars. You, 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 it's you can't forget you're on the planet Earth. Right, right. <laughs> but you you can't let it get in the in your way. Right. Because at that point, then he's not Robert Duvall, the movie star, the international celebrity. Uh-huh. He's Robert E. Lee. You're trying to get him to be Robert E. Lee. Right. So that process is the same whether it's a superstar or whether it's a, a first-time neophyte actor. Mm-hmm. You have to be a guide, a helper. Uh, you have to be the director. Right. You got to give them direction, and uh, you have to. Uh, you also understand um, that with somebody like Martin Sheen and Robert Duvall, they have already worked with the best directors on the planet. Yeah, uh, you better know what you're doing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because if you don't, you can imagine uh, that the, oh. the, the two two bad alternatives could happen. They could clam up, mm-hmm. and then you got a real problem. Mm-hmm. Or they can paint by the numbers, which is worse. I call mm-hmm. it painting by the numbers when an actor falls back on their bag of tricks. And actors have a big bag of tricks. And then you get Robert Duvall in your movie, uh, painting by the numbers, which is still going to be very good, mm-hmm. but nothing special. Yeah. Nothing memorable. Yeah. Why would you want to waste an opportunity? So you want to give these actors who have this enormous potential uh, a clear runway to take off and go for the stars. Okay. And that's about creating an atmosphere that is safe, that is conducive to taking risks. Because basically, if you give them that opportunity, they're back. They're back. They're twenty years old again. Mm-hmm. They're act. They're they're in the actor's studio. Mm-hmm. They're unknown actors in their first play on Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you have to create. You got to create that atmosphere so that they can get into the thing, get into the play, get into the the character, and just go for it and become that character and invest themselves completely. Yeah. And and that's and that's what you have to do with, with the, any actor, but certainly I think with, with the stars, remember that at their heart of hearts, they're actors. Mm-hmm. That's what they've chosen to do with their life. They're not 
the celebrity. They're not the movie star. Mm -hmm. They're not the guy that's getting paid $2 million a minute. You got to get that out of your head and just deal with them, uh, the soul of the person, and meet it, try to meet at that level. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned last night in your talk that um, uh, when you were doing Gettysburg, uh, you would have at least two weeks where you had rehearsals. And that is where you really do the directing, getting the, getting the, the, the actor into the moment, uh, getting them to understand w- where their role is. Is that not right? Is that... Uh, yeah, on a, on a movie that doesn't require big logistics, like learning how to ride horses and learning how to handle weapons, and like we had on the big war movies, I find one week is adequate pre-production. Mm-hmm. On a big movie like Gettysburg or Gods and Generals, uh, then I, 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 I build two weeks of pre-production uh, with actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the pre-production goes on for months, but with actors on the set... Uh, not all your actors, not not your what we call under fives. Mm-hmm. Under five is an actor that has less than five lines. It's defined by the Screen Actors Guild. Right. Those people are usually hired locally where you're filming. But the main parts, the principal characters, get them in two weeks ahead. So, for instance, on on the on the Civil War movies, we had to match them up with horses. Now mm-hmm. we have photographs of of Hancock and Lee and Meade right. and all these generals. We know what their horses look like. Right. You, so, so they have you have to mat, the horses have to be cast. So the Wrangler comes in with his trained movie horses. <laughs> And I told the Wranglers on both these movies, I want big horses. I don't want little horses because these guys had the best horses available in the 1860s. Absolutely. The generals had the best ones. Absolutely. And so I want some, you know, a lot of hands on those horses. Right. Right. And, uh, and, um, and so it's, it's part of the authenticity of the movie making. But those actors then have to be matched up. They got to ride with that horse. You can't just put them on a horse the day you're filming. Yeah. It's not going to work. <laughs> So, uh, so you need, and, and some actors have a lot of experience with horses. Some have zero. Yeah. But you've cast them, and you got to make it work. Yeah. So you need that time, and if they have to handle pistols or shoot pistols or shoot muskets, and and like in the case of uh, uh, Hank, uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, remember right. he's firing a weapon. Right. Kilrain's firing a weapon. Right. Tom Chamberlain, they're firing weapons in the Battle of Little Round Top. You just can't on the day hand them a weapon. Right. So so that the whole week is that stuff: working with props, working with horses. Uh, uh, going on the ground, seeing the battlefield. And then the second week, uh-huh. as you get closer to the shooting, that's when we do what you were just mentioning, Kent, breaking down the scenes. What's going on here? Because as we all know, regardless of how powerful the dialogue is, and dialogue is certainly important, as we discussed earlier, right. talking about Shakespeare, right. heightened language, the power of words. What's, you know what's even more important? What's between the words? yeah. And that's what the actors bring. Yeah. So between this line of dialogue and that dialogue, line of dialogue, there may be five emotional beats yeah. that are very important. Otherwise, when you go from this line of dialogue to that line of dialogue, you've just skipped over a lot of material and, you, and, and you've lost the human behavior. Yeah. And what is the most compelling thing about uh, th- this kind of movie making, which is yeah. narrative move, movie making when you're using actors... Uh-huh as opposed to other kind of movies that are being made now with cartoons and CGI, et cetera, right. Right. Uh, is behavior, mm-hmm. human behavior. And that's what you explore in rehearsals. Yeah. And you can't just throw people on a set and say, we're filming today, because if you do that, you're going to lose the behavior. You're going to get what I call the actor's bag of tricks. Mm-hmm. You're going to hit like the, uh, it's like the condensed version you're watching. 
or the Cliff Notes version. Yeah. We don't want the Cliff Notes version. We want the real thing. So you have to have rehearsal to explore all that. And when you explore it, actors bring their, their muse, their imagination. Mm-hmm. You find things in rehearsal that you, you didn't think of, you didn't yeah. imagine even. Yeah. And this is what actors bring. And then together in the ensemble, all sorts of things are created. Now, you can say, well, this is interesting, but it's not where we want to go. Right. That's what you have to give yourself the time. It's the same as you do in rehearsing for a play, yeah. even a classical play by Chekhov or Ibsen. Uh, there's no produc- two productions the same. Mm-hmm. You have different actors. You have different directors, right. even though it's the same exact play. <laughs> That's yeah. why we keep doing it. It's reinterpreted, <laughs> it's reinterpreted, right. reinvented. Re- right. so, so, so we need, right. even though this particular screenplay has never been done before, the adaptation of Michael Shara's Killer Angels, we have to explore it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'll, we'll leave gems on the side. And so all that exploration is done. And then once we understand what it's about, mm-hmm. what's really going on here at an emotional human level, then, then myself, with, with the uh, huge contribution of my cameraman, Case Van Ostrom, can figure out how we're going to capture this on film. Yeah. And so in the rehearsal process, as we proceed, we say, okay, this scene between, uh, between Hancock and Chamberlain or this scene between Armistead and Longstreet, we're going to film it in three setups or mm-hmm. five setups or one setup mm-hmm. or 20 setups. Yeah. So that we know that, we convey that information to both to the actors and to the crew, yeah. so that when the crew gets on the set, long before they get on the set, they know that this scene is going to be five setups, mm-hmm. and and the continuity clerk knows it, and that so that means we're going to need two hours to film it, or we're going to need three hours to film it, and because of our production experience, we can make es- uh, educated estimates about what it's going to take to do the scene, yeah. and then over a course of Gettysburg, sixty-two days. Now, we had budgeted 62 days. Guess what? We shot 62 days Did you because really? of the preparation. Yeah, It's all about preparation yeah. and then execution. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, on Gods and Generals, we budgeted 72 days. We filmed 72 days. Wow. It's preparation and knowing what it takes to get certain things done. And you reduced each one of the scenes to uh, 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 a written form so that you had a like a shoot sheet where you – knew exactly where you wanted people, not only what they were to say, but where they were to be. I mean, all that was done uh, way yeah, ahead and, of and, and, and I, I should hasten to add that the, the, one of the beautiful things about preparation is not just that you're going to stay on schedule, mm-hmm. which is important because uh, right. uh, n- nobody wants to go over schedule no. or over budget right. uh, uh, because then you're, 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 you're undermining the investors. You right. got to be – the people are investing in this. Somebody is investing in this. You can't – Forget that. Right. You've got to be responsible. But, but the other great benefit of preparation, uh, many benefits, nobody panics. Mm-hmm. Nobody's in a state of anxiety. Nobody. Not the prop man, not the makeup people, not, not the people in, in, uh, who are bringing you the donuts. <laughs> Nobody's, everybody's relaxed yeah. because everybody knows what is expected of them. Absolutely. And, and, they, and, and I'll tell you one thing about film crews, they have a high, high sense of pride in their work. Mm-hmm. So whether you're the electrician or the, or the focus puller or the dolly grip, uh, people want to be the best dolly grip yeah. in the world, the best focus puller. Yeah. That, that, that's what you have going on in a, a, movie, a movie set. And so by giving people the set, the preparation, nobody's caught off guard. Now, the, then the greatest benefit of preparation is that then on the day, you can throw it all away and change your mind. Yeah. That's and you could be creative. So on the day you're filming day 32, your actors show up and suddenly an actor comes up and does something completely different than you rehearsed. 
because you have rehearsed it, because you have explored it, I can say to the director, that's wonderful. Aren't we lucky that this is happening? And go there right. without having an anxiety. Oh, it's going to take another hour. Oh, that's not. We're, there's no anxiety on the set. So you can be as free as you want to be. And I can tell you that happened many times on the set of Gettysburg and many times on the set of Gods and Generals where something spontaneously happened either because of I had a different idea or the cameraman had a different idea or an actor did something differently when we went with it. Yeah. And it's cool and it's better yeah. and you have a better movie. Yeah. How, how big a crew do you, did you have at Gettysburg and Gods and Generals? What was the size of the number of people that come? Well, both those movies is, is, is what you call old-fashioned filmmaking because mm -hmm. very little, little to nothing relied on computer effects. Yeah. It's making movies the old-fashioned way, right. like Sergei Bondarchuk did Waterloo. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he, in his case, I think he had 10,000 or 15,000, perhaps, members of the Russian, Red Army, Red Army. Uh, to do Waterloo. <laughs> uh, you know, so, so, so in Pickett's Charge, we have 5,500 reenactors. Yeah. And that's a big logistical challenge from start to finish. And, that, and there you have to have a really, really good assistant director crew, which I had on both movies, the very best. And, and you can't have assistant directors who are, you know, doing this for the first time. Right. you got to have ADs who have done this kind of big, old-fashioned movie making uh -huh. where, uh, you know, there, there's uh, the only CGI we did on Gettysburg was eliminating the contrails of airplanes in the sky in the or getting rid of some of the monuments uh, that were uh, that were on the Gettysburg battlefield. So they were the, the elimination kind of CGI. There's no adding uh, 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 CGI in Gettysburg. But 10 years later, when we did Gods and Generals, we did some of that elimination stuff, mm -hmm. uh, wires and things, but also we, we, we did augment the number of troops coming up in, in the charge in the, in the Battle of the Rappahannock. Uh -huh. But other than that, nothing. So, so, so neither movie depended on that the way, that, let's say, the Lord of the Rings cycle, right. uh, enormous CGI, oh, almost yeah. start to finish, almost oh, yeah. every frame. Oh, yeah. uh, so, uh, or Avatar. Avatar must be 100% CGI, yeah. except for the actors. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's a different, it's an it's a older fashion way of movie making. Some movies are still made that way. That's how we made them. Um, and uh, it, it, again, uh, those kind of movies, you have to have a, a, a very accomplished crew that knows, that knows what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there were some actors in uh, Gettysburg and Gods and Generals, like Jeff Daniels, who, I mean, I really knew nothing of Jeff Daniels before I saw him at Get in the Gettysburg movie. And he was a perfect Joshua Chamberlain, by the way. Where did you find him? Well, my, my original uh, choice, this is well known. I'm not letting any secrets out of the bag here. Yeah. Um, I'm certainly not offending anyone. Well, uh, it, you know, this is now the movie was made, was filmed 27 years ago. It's hard to believe. It came out 26 years ago this October. It's unbelievable. This November. Uh, last year, in fact, we had the uh, the 25th anniversary of the release of the film, a beautiful uh, a celebration and screening at, at the Majestic Theater in Gettysburg. So 27 years ago, when I was doing the, ca the casting and the prep on the movie, um, I was told about a young actor who had not done any movies in America, but he had done a couple of movies in Australia. Uh, and, I, and I said, this guy would probably would be good for you to look at. So I called him in. Uh, he did an audition. I was really impressed, really impressed. Now, the studio had, as I mentioned earlier, when you do a picture of the studio or the financier or the network, whoever it is, says XYZ roles, we want marquee names. Mm -hmm. And one of the XYZ roles where they insisted on a marquee name was Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, right. understandably so, right. one of the leads. Right. 
Now, this particular actor nobody had ever heard of, mm-hmm. but I but I got this tip that I should see him, and I saw him, and, he, and he, I said, whoa, this guy's good. I said, look, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'd cast you now, but the studio wants a big name, so I'm going to have to sell you. So I want you to learn a couple of these uh, arias, I call mm-hmm. them, the, the big speeches, yeah. that, which is another departure from contemporary cinema. Yeah. I remember when some studio executives earlier on in the 15 years I was trying to get the movie made, uh, you know, when I had every studio slam the door in my face, uh, <laughs> and, and I had a producer, a friend of mine, tell me, Ron, when 10 people tell you you're drunk, lie down. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, I was tenacious. I'm a Capricorn. You know, I kept going. I had my head down like a billy goat and um, uh, would persevere and persevere and persevere. But and, and another thing I heard was because, as you know from watching those films, uh, they, they go off on uh, on their arias right. where one actor just – goes on for and it, now you shouldn't know it's an aria when you're watching it uh, because you should be caught up in the story right but when you look at it on the page and the screenplay right. there's one actor talking for three and a half pages yeah and the studio executives would say no way <laughs> no way that, 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 that what are you thinking and I would never budge on that never uh-huh. budge so yeah. you know Chamberlain has this oh, to yeah. when he's talking about the rights of man oh, and when he's talking yeah. about slavery oh, yeah. and other characters go on and on they wax poetic I wasn't going to cut that out no. that, that to me is, is central so uh, so, so I, I told this particular actor, I said, yeah, I want you to learn a couple of these. We're going to come up to my, my house in Hidden Hills. We're going in, in, in the yard, and I'm going to do, it, do audition mm-hmm. tapes. And, mm-hmm. and I got him a blue uniform and, and a hat and everything that could fit him. And he prepped it, and, he came, and, I, and I filmed this stuff. And I came and I showed it to the executives. I said, this is the guy I want to play Chamberlain. I, Look, it speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. He's the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said no. So uh, they, we want a name. So a couple of weeks went by, and I, quite frankly, honestly, I was stalling. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even seeing anybody else because I wanted this guy. So and I was seeing other actors, Sam Elliott for mm-hmm. uh, Buford, sure, and eventually we got uh, Marty Sheen for Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, we, we continued on the casting. We're getting wonderful actors, uh, and Tom Berenger Tom for Berenger. Longstreet. So I was getting the marquee names like they wanted, but I was stalling on on Chamberlain because I thought we had the guy. Mm-hmm. And as, when we once we had more of a cast, they acquiesced. So we, weeks later, they said, "What are your guys? Who did you find for Tom Chamberlain?" I said, "I mean for Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain." I said, "Well, this guy. I want to stay with this guy. You can't do better than him." And and I was told, "If I, if we hear his name one more time, we're canceling the project." Mm-hmm. That actor was Russell Crowe. Really. Of course, a terrific actor. And then subsequently, of course, he had, had had and continues to have a great career. But after they told me that, I realized I'd pushed the envelope as about as far <laughs> as I could push it. And uh, we went on a serious search, and that's when uh, we thought of Jeff Daniels. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we made him an offer subject to a meeting because Jeff Daniels isn't going to come in and audition for you any more than... Tom Berenger or Sam Elliott. At that level, they don't come in and read. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Very rare, very rare. It happens rarely. Yeah. They might come in and read for, I don't know, Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> maybe who's now deceased, but you know, picks some legendary director. They might they yeah. might make an exception, yeah. but normally they don't do it. Once they reach that kind of level of stardom, uh, they'll take a meeting mm-hmm. with the director or a producer, but they're not going to read for the part. Yeah. And and that's understandable because you you got ten movies to look at. Yeah, you know you, yeah. you know what they do. Right. So uh, we arranged to meet uh, Jeff Daniels. I was back and forth between Los Angeles and Gettysburg at the time prepping the movie, and he happened to be in um, 
uh, Michigan, uh, outside of Detroit, uh, he had has still a theater company called the Purple Rose Theater Company. He was then and remains very active in theater as well mm-hmm. as movies mm-hmm. and television. And so we met for the first time. I, I saw a play that he wrote mm-hmm. about a pickle factory, a very mm-hmm. amusing play. <laughs> he was not in it. He wrote it and directed it, as I recall. And we met afterwards at a, a brewery. We had what, uh, <laughs> not to make this sound too caricaturish, but we had a male bonding experience. Yeah. Because uh, uh, I looked him in the eye and I said, Jeff, you know, all the movies you've done, he had done a lot of movies already, uh-huh. uh, Terms of Endearment. I mean, you, we, we knew the guy was a damn good actor. Yeah. I had actually seen him on the stage. Oh, he's a very good In actor. New York, in, yeah. in younger days, yeah. when I was in public television. He was doing plays at Circle in the Square, or Circle Rep, one of those companies, the Lanford Wilson, Wilson mm-hmm. play. So I, I, I knew the guy was a great actor, mm-hmm. as well as being a big marquee name. But what I told him, I said, Jeff, you know, I, I've seen you be the professor. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is a professor. Right. But in Little Round Top, he orders men to go into battle to kill. Right. Not just to risk your life, remember. They weren't sitting up there, like, for target practice. Mm-hmm. They were shooting at other human beings. Right. Desperately. Desperately. Struggling for the battle in the Battle of Little Round Top. Mm-hmm. So I said, Jeff, I've seen the professor in you. Mm-hmm. I've never seen the killer. Mm-hmm. In any any party ever did, yeah. I just want to make sure. I want to hear from you. I'm not asking you to read for me. I just want to make sure that you can bring the steel mm-hmm. to this guy. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow. And he fixed his eyes on me, and he said, "Oh, I'll I'll give you the effing steel. <laughs> <laughs> but what I want to know from you, the director, are you going to shoot the movie that you wrote?" Mm-hmm. Are you going to make this movie or are you going to let some studio executive push you around and water it down and make oh, something else? Wow. So uh, he said, looked at me and he said, are you going to give me the effing steel? Wow. And we shook hands. Wow. No more needed to be said. Wow. Wow. That's really interesting. And that guy <clears throat> delivered. Yeah, He did. He did. That guy he did. delivered. He did. He did. Uh, tell me about uh, getting... Uh, 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 Sam Elliott, the uh, played. Uh... Well, we offered him the part, and I didn't meet him till after. Uh, I, I, I don't even remember having a meeting with him. I think I met him on the set. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was. Uh, uh, I don't. I could be mistaken. I don't believe I met him before he came on the set. We cast mm-hmm. him. We thought he was just utterly perfect for the role of. Yeah, Bill he was. Fred. He was. And he was. And he was. Uh, uh, without exception, every actor that showed up uh, really showed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, underline that, capitalize that. Yeah, they they came yeah. prepared. They came having read the biographies of the, if there were biographies of yeah. the characters, having read the regimental histories. Yeah. So they knew about the people they were portraying, and they came with a sense of responsibility mm-hmm. and almost a sense of duty that they were dealing with American history, with their ancestors with a story that belongs to all of us. Right. It doesn't belong to those right. actors or to Ron Maxwell. Right. It belongs to us all, right. especially as Americans, but also to to world civilization. The Battle of Gettysburg is one of those uh, uh, epochal human yes. events that people even study in foreign countries. Right. And so there was a high sense of, uh, of responsibility, and every actor brought that yeah. bear to the set. One thing I would like to explore briefly is your your the, the role of the reenactors. 
you have a great scene in Gettysburg where uh, Robert E. Lee shows up and they all begin to cheer him. Um, tell us about how that scene evolved. Well, that scene uh, is the, probably the uh, most <laughs> striking example of what I was mentioning earlier about the ability to be spontaneous. Yeah. When you're prepared, uh, you can make decisions and not worry about it. Mm-hmm. We had filmed, I'm trying to remember how we did this. My recollection is we filmed the the Confederates first and then the Yankees, but I, I might have that backwards. I should I should remember this correctly. But because there's only one scene in the movie when the Confederate characters meet the Yankee characters. Mm-hmm. That you wouldn't know that, but that's a fact. And that scene is when Tom Chamberlain kneels down to talk to the wounded Armistead at the yes. cannon. Right. In the in the angle at Pickett's Charge. Yeah. Other than that moment, there's not a scene in the movie where the Yankee cast is in the same scene as the Confederate cast. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like we had two shooting schedules, almost like we were making two movies. Yeah. So the one cast arrived on the set, rehearsed and left, and the other cast arrived on the set, rehearsed and left. Now they had met before because as I say in the rehearsal two weeks, the two weeks of rehearsal before we started filming, mm-hmm. they were all there. Yeah. So that's when people actually met. But once we started filming, they never met again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They didn't meet till the premiere. Yeah. Except for the those two actors played Tom Chamberlain and Armistead. Mm-hmm. So when we were filming the uh the scene where the troops come out of the tree line, we were already well, well, well into the movies filming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we took we had six days on the schedule to shoot Pickett's Charge, because we said, "What if it rains for five days?" Yeah, we're out of luck. Yeah, because well, we have thousands and thousands of reenactors. Like we can't do it. We can't say come yeah. back next week. Yeah, they they had scheduled their vacation time, their free time. Every one of those reenactors has a job. Uh huh. All sorts of jobs. White-collar jobs, blue-collar jobs, doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs. And so th- that was immovable. Now, we had lots of reenactors for the whole schedule, the whole 62-day schedule over, over many, many weeks. But for Pickett's Charge, it was those six days, Monday through yeah. Saturday. Yeah. We scheduled six days because of, we had to consider about weather. Summertime in Gettysburg, you could be rained out yeah, or right. rained out partially, right. thunderstorms, right. that kind of thing. Right. Well, as it turned out, it didn't rain any of those six days. Wow. So we had uh, different shooting lists. We had, these are the essential shots. We must get to tell the story. Yeah. These are the next set of essential shots. Then we have, these are the wonderful, aren't we lucky if we could get them shot list. Yeah. Well, yeah. We, we ended up getting everything on any list because we had a full six days. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, the gods were shining down on us. <laughs> and so the day we had the troops coming out of the tree line, and that's one of the reasons we were able to do Pickett's Charge in such detail. Yeah. One of the critics said after the movie came out, Pickett's Charge was filmed in real time. Mm-hmm. And they, were, they weren't far off. <laughs> they weren't far off. Yeah. That is almost exactly the time it took in real time in history to do Pickett's Charge <laughs> is what you see in the movie. As a result, it's replete with details. Yeah, yeah. And it's the details that make it fascinating. Yeah, right. How people fought, how they marched out, how they organized themselves, when they decided to shoot, stand, and fight, and charge, and yeah. go to bayonets, and so forth. Yeah. When they changed ordnance from long-range uh, cannons to, to grape shot and, and, right. and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So all sorts of details we were able to do because we had the time to do it. So the scene when we were doing the troops coming out of the tree line, 
the only actors we had on the set that day were the three regimental division commanders. Right. Armistead, Kemper, and Garnett. Right. Right. All the other actors had a day off because it was those three division commanders and the troops. Yeah. Because it was so hot and humid, we had ambulances on the set 24-7 because it was so hot and humid, we had to worry about heat exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And dehydration. And right. that's serious. If somebody collapses from heat exhaustion, you have to stabilize them on the spot, yeah. get them in an ambulance, and get them to a hospital. You could die yeah, right. from heat exhaustion or sunstroke or dehydration. So we were hydrating the guys. Imagine 5,000 guys. We had people running out with Gatorade yeah. and water and Gatorade and water <laughs> nonstop. And uh, a couple of guys did collapse, and we had to, and, and you can't just pick them up and move them. You have to stabilize them on the spot mm-hmm. before you could move them, put them in the ambulance. Yeah. So this is the background I'm giving you of, of the circumstances. Now, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we brought Robert E. Lee out uh, on Traveler just as a morale booster for the for the reenactors? Yeah. And uh, and maybe Stephen Lang to come out as Pickett. Yeah. And I'm trying to maybe Stephen was already working that day. No, I, I let me correct myself. Stephen was there. Yeah. Uh, as as Pickett along with the three division commanders, yeah. he was already in costume on the set. All right. We said, uh, let, let's send a message to uh, Marty Sheen, ask him if he'd suit up. And it's, <laughs> it's a big deal because it's his day off. Yeah. And, at, and, and it's like t- two or two and a half hours in hair and makeup <laughs> before he even put the costume on. Yeah. And he agreed. He is super, super nice guy, Marty yeah. Sheen. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that afternoon, early in the afternoon, we're filming the troops coming out of the tree line and on strides. Robert E. Lee, Martin Sheen on Traveler, mm-hmm. and the troops spontaneously started cheering and going around him. And so I, I, to, I motioned the, the cameraman and the sound guy, film, roll, roll, roll. Yeah, yeah. And and we didn't have the sticks, the sticks in the front of a scene. We have the scene and act, you know, scene two hundred and thirty-one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The date and yeah, the, the, right. the roll number of the film. This is we're shooting on film in those yeah, days, not yeah. digital. So we yeah. had four hundred feet rolls in the magazines of, of film and the Panavision cameras, roll. Yeah, uh, and so we thought we got to capture this, and the ads and the assistants and the uh, pas are going picking up the paper cups and the, ga- the Gatorade stuff and this, <laughs> getting it out, you know. And and and, and, and we, we, I wasn't going to stop it, and it's what in the 1960s. Remember, I'm a, mm-hmm. a I'm the 60s generation. Yeah. is what we called back in those days a happening. Yeah, this was a happening. Yeah, yeah. a spontaneous, awesome transformation transition happening where we were suddenly in 1863. Yeah. yeah. And this is what could only happen with reenactors. Had they been paid extras or hire an army like uh, we thought about doing right. in Eastern Europe, it, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. It happened because every single one of those reenactors They're great. is living in the 1860s. They are. They are. They and are. if you put them in an environment where they're totally in the 1860s, <laughs> they're there. So they, it wasn't Martin Sheen. It wasn't, oh, they weren't getting around the celebrity actor from Hollywood. No way. No. This, was, this was Robert E. Lee. And we captured this incredible it's a, thing it's a great where those thousands of reenactors, you couldn't, it's one of the, some of the best performances in the movies. <laughs> it's the most and memorable. And they're not trained actors. They, yeah. didn't, they didn't learn the method of the Stanislavski yeah. method. Yeah. They were believing because acting is believing. That's what Stanislavski said. Yeah. That's what Chekhov knew. Acting is believing. That's the name of his book. Yeah. And that's where those reenactors were. Yeah. They, they had achieved in that moment what, what a great classical actor has to, trained to it to, to yeah, achieve yeah. and we captured it. and once we captured it we said okay we went the, the 400 feet of film ran out 
and and Case was motioning to me, you know, no more film. They were still cheering, uh, and uh, and of course Marty Sheen stayed in character the whole time. He understood oh, without being told anything oh, what was going on, yeah. and 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 then Pickett rode in. He got in his horse and he rode into the shot too. Yeah. None of this was staged. None of this was planned. Totally spontaneous. So after we, the film ran out, we said, okay, cut, 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 calm down, stop. Yeah, yeah. And we said, okay, we're changing this day. We had another four or five hours of, of, of filming to do. We said, drop that. We're moving that to another day. Told the assistant directors, we're going to make a whole scene out of this, what mm-hmm. we just captured. Mm-hmm. And for the rest of the afternoon, we covered it. We redid what we had captured in close-ups and different angles. Again and again and again. And that scene is in the movie. It was never in the script. And I think most people agree it's one of the most dramatic scenes Just totally memorable. Only possible because we were using reenactors. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. Well, you know, um, we first talked when you were making that movie. At the time, uh, folks, uh, I was chairman of the... uh, Gettysburg National Military Park Advisory Commission. And um, the superintendent of the park, who was then uh, uh, Jose Cisneros uh, with the National Park Service, asked me if I would be the one to field questions you may have about using the park. And I can remember I was in my office here in Lexington, Kentucky, and you called and uh, Asked me whether or not you all could use the slider bar, slider farm, which would be Lee's headquarters, and uh, it was no problem with any of that. And Devil's Den, and so I mean, you were really filming that on the site. And I like to bring this up because uh, this is why I admire what you do, um, Ron. I'm a great believer in getting people to see and understand history, American history. We just don't have very many people who know anything about it in in our culture today. And the more we can get people to see it and entertain them too, because that's what keeps them in the picture, keeps them on focus. Uh, If we can do that, then we can get people more interested in history. And... um, when I was working at the, with the park doing this uh, on this commission, uh, we would keep track, the park would keep track, of visitation at Gettysburg. And for years leading up to your movie, Gettysburg would receive about one and a half million visitors a year, which is pretty substantial. But then after your movie came out, I'll I'll never forget, I was in the park headquarters uh, doing some paperwork uh, on um, some commission work. And I looked out and there was no place for people to park. It it was so jammed. And I turned to uh, uh, one of the park uh, employees and I said, uh, "This this is extraordinary. It's unusual. I said, what what's doing that? And they go, the movie Gettysburg. And I said, do you have some stats? Well, we'll get them as soon as the year ends. This is your movie was just getting going. And ultimately, we found that we that year got three and a half million people 
going to Gettysburg. All because of you, Ron, and your movie. And it still is a huge visitation. Uh, I would say it's three and a half million plus because your movie continues. It's going to continue for a long time, Ron. And uh, same with Gods and Generals. Those movies will have a long, long life. And for all of that, and I know what a challenge it is for a film director and writer, uh, I think I know, uh, to make a film about subjects like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, I mean, you really stick your neck out in this culture today. But you did it. And look at the fruits it has borne. It's absolutely stunning how many people. Last night we asked, how many of you have seen Gettysburg? The entire crowd raised their hands. <laughs> it's, it is stunning the number of people who've watched it. And it's stunning the effect it's had on people getting interested in history. So, Ron, thank you very much. And thank you, Ron, for appearing today. Well, you know, on that note, you raise a very important note, I think, a profound note, which is what historical films can do. All films, but particularly historical films. Uh, and I'm thinking of the great filmmakers who have made them, like Ang Lee, like Steven Spielberg, like Akira Kurosawa like Andre Wyda, uh, there's a long list of really mm -hmm. impressive filmmakers working in the, in the realm of history. Um, because what it really does, the film, and you just mentioned it with Gettysburg, it's a link. You're holding hands across generations. Right. Because, yes, we made it in the summer of 1992 we filmed it. Mm -hmm. It came out in 93. That's the generation that made the movie about a generation that actually lived and fought and died in 1863. Mm -hmm. And people will see this movie who are now unborn. Right. Future generations. Right. So the film is the link. Right. It is where the hands join across time, linking the generation of the 1860s right. with all future generations. Right. This is the power of cinema. It is the power of cinema. Um, and what, what also is, is so grand about cinema is that you not only get the chance to tell people about history, but you do it in a way that entertains them. They stay with it. They enjoy it. They want to see it to its conclusion. And that is the key with cinema. It's like the stage to sh it was Shakespeare. They can see the characters. They see Richard II. And uh, anyway, Ron, you, you did spectacular work, and there's a lot more in you, I trust. <laughs> Listen, thank you very, very much for coming. Thank you, Kent. Great to be with you. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org. Download our documentaries and free teacher education materials that conform to grade level education standards at pbslearning.org. 
Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.